Okay, welcome to this week's episode. You are listening to The Good Show and my name is Surinda. Today I'm honored to have on the show Clay Novak, a retired lieutenant colonel, a warrior, a great leader and an avid hunter. Also an author and a media consultant. Now that was a bit of a mouthful, but welcome to The Good Show, Clay. Thanks, Surinda. Thanks for having me on. Listen, before I go any further, first of all, I want to thank you for your service. Well, I, I appreciate that. I tell that's uh, one of those uncomfortable questions or uncomfortable comments for a lot of service members. They don't know how to respond to that, myself included, for a very long time. And uh, my response uh, to that is that my service was my pleasure because it was for, for over 25 years. You know, something that's a great response. When I see service members, whether they're in the local supermarket or wherever they are, I'll go over and I'll go, hey, thanks for your service. And nine times out of ten, first of all, they're shocked that anybody would even say that to them. And they do find it hard to respond. But the other day I actually went up to this kid. He was a kid, you know, and I said, hey, dude, thank you for your service and thank you for the service you're going to, to give. And he looked at me and he went, I'm enjoying every day, ma'am. And I thought, dude, what a great fucking response. Yeah. You know, I thought you need to, you need to go home and hug your parents because they're raising you right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it is. And it's, uh, you know, the, the other question I get a lot and, you know, I'm not trying to get ahead of you, but uh, people ask me if there's anything that I miss, uh, you know, now that I'm retired and, and probably one of the biggest things is kids like that. Yeah. Uh, it's the young service members, whatever service you're from, you know, I was in the army, so soldiers for me, but Marine sailors, airmen, uh, coasties, whatever. Um, I miss those kinds of kids. That's one of the things I miss every day is being around kids like that. I know. I mean, I was on base the other day and I was listening to, um, a conversation, you know, and it basically went along the lines of today. We don't, we can't meet numbers, you know, today it's a different world. It's, um, it's just um, a different era altogether where, you know, people aren't um, signing up, you know, the way they used to. And, you know, there's difference of opinions as to why people aren't signing up, you know, um, but they're not signing up and it, it, it's getting hard. And those kids are far and few between, you know. And I, and listen, I'm older than dirt. I blame technology, first of all, you know. Um, I think it's the, the bane of anybody's existence these days that has a kid, you know, that is on a phone all the time. And, you know, we have a policy in our house that, hey, once you come in, the phone goes on the kitchen counter because you're home. You, you don't need it. We know where you are now. You're safe. You're at home, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's technology. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. But... Um, Listen, let me ask you before I get off track here. I want to I want to ask you you were in the army out of all of the branches, Clay, why the army? So it, it, a little bit of it uh goes into answering what you were just talking about. So um I come from, you know, not a career family, but pretty much everybody in my family served. Um my dad was a Viet in, you know, in during the Vietnam era um in the late 60s. Uh, he served in the Air Force. I had two grandfathers that served in World War II, um, both, you know, one in the Pacific, one in, in B-17s over Europe. Um, and um, none of them, well, I guess one grandfather was Army Air Corps before there was an Air Force, but none of them were in the Army. So I, the idea of me serving was always there. Um, but I got to college. I come from a very blue-collar family uh, from Chicago. And I had an older sister already in college and I had a younger sister behind me by a few years. And, you know, my parents, you know, it was, it wasn't easy. You know, I mean, I went to my freshman year of college on a, on a Pell grant um, mm -hmm. to help pay for it. And I was looking for a way to help my parents um, pay for my school without going desperately in debt. And I found out that in Illinois, which is, you know, where I'm from, mm -hmm. um, if you, if you enlist in the national guard, um, they pay, and you go to a, and you attend a state university. Um, they pay for your tuition. Wow! So, so yeah, uh, great, great. So you know, kind of two birds with one stone. I was going to serve, and I was going to get my college paid for. So, so I enlisted in the Army National Guard, um, and I truthfully, I went to basic training in AIT at uh, 
you know, what used to be Fort Benning, now Fort Moore with the name change. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I enlisted as an infantryman because it, it interested me and it, I knew it was going to challenge me. And I, I fell in love with the Army. Um, but I truthfully, I, I hated being a private. <laughs> I did. Uh, I did. Um, you know, basic training in infantry school was, was fun. Um, and I enjoyed it and it pushed me all the time, but I really did hate being a private. And, and thankfully I had a, a drill sergeant who, I for whatever reason, he saw something in me and he pulled me aside and he said, Hey, you need to go back to school and, and join ROTC and go become an officer. Um, so I did, I, I went back to school. Um, and you know, I, I, I joined the ROTC department full time, uh, at my university and I, you know, finished my last couple of years there and I completed the program and, you know, in those two plus years of doing that, I decided I wanted to go active duty and, and, uh, go serve as, as an officer for, you know, as long as it was enjoyable for me. Now, how many years was it enjoyable for you? So, you know, it was uh, two and a half years of National Guard time during college. And then um, I was commissioned as an infantry officer in 1995 and I retired in 2019. And uh, I enjoyed, you know, everybody has good days and bad days. And yeah. Let's not sugarcoat it. You know, there's some days that you absolutely hate um, and there's some days that you absolutely love. Um, and uh, so, you know, I enjoyed, you know, I had good days all the way until the day I retired. Um, I won't ever say that I, I hated the army or that I, I lost my love for the army. Um, you know, but it, it took its toll on me physically, mentally, emotionally. And, you know, in 2019, it was, it was time for me to, to do something else. Now you mentioned that you were commissioned, you know, for those folks that are listening that don't know what that means, what, what, when you're commissioned, what does that mean? So um, there's uh, three different, well, there's actually four different ways to be commissioned as an officer. So that's what it means to take a commission is to become an officer um, in the military. So the four commissioning sources, one is uh, direct commission, very rare. That's usually somebody who is a doctor, lawyer, um, something like that, where they take a direct commission and just make them an officer first and then train them how to be one afterwards. Um, But those are few and far between. and then you have officer candidate school, which is, uh, you know, enlisted soldiers um, who at this point now, I think the requirement is they already have to have a college degree. Um, they go through a course, uh, you know, that the Army, you know, puts on all the time. And at the end of that, they transition from being an enlisted soldier to an officer. Um, and then there's ROTC, which is the Reserve Officer Training Corps, which is embedded in in a majority, a vast number of universities across the United States, um, where you go through a, a two, two, three or four year program, depending on, you know, when you begin, um, but a minimum of two years and they train you on the basics of becoming an officer. Uh, and then, uh, the last one is the military academy. Um, so any one of those four methods will commission you will end with you being commissioned as an officer. Um, and the difference is is specifically that commissioning means you are an officer. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I think that makes that makes perfect sense. I mean, even I, I mean, I've been married for twenty seven years, and sometimes I still get confused. You were commissioned? What do What do you mean? Um, so <laughs> <laughs> before before you, when you joined the army, had you ever been out the U.S.? No, in fact, my very first plane ride in my life <laughs> was to basic training. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And we traveled when I was a kid and we traveled all over the United States, but we drove everywhere. Um, yeah. my, my family was not a, um, you know, fly to Florida for two weeks. It was a drive to, you know, South Dakota, uh, <laughs> you know, en route to Cheyenne, Wyoming and go see <laughs> Custer's Battlefield and, you know, uh, Mount Rushmore and mm-hmm. stop at Yellowstone and, and those kinds of things. We, that, we did that when I was a kid. That sounds wonderful. It really does. I think a lot of that is kind of lost today as well. You know, um, I mean, I I come from very humble beginnings as well. My parents were immigrants, blue collar workers. And um, even though the flight down to, to London from Scotland was maybe 30, 40 minutes, we drove you know, because we, yeah. we, you know, because really you couldn't afford to fly. I mean, if you were flying back in that time, you, you, you know, people thought you were rolling in it. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> and we just didn't have that kind of rolling in it kind of cash. So the first time you went abroad out the US, w- where did you go? Uh, the, the first time I left the United States was uh, on my way to Afghanistan. <laughs> wow. Okay. So let, when you get your, so you've been told you're going to Afghanistan. What's going through your mind as you you're told, okay, listen now, you guys, you're going to Afghanistan. And what was happening in Afghanistan at the time when you went over? Yeah. So um, when 9-11 happened, I was a, uh, a infantry company commander um, in the 82nd Airborne Division. So, um, you know, I was commanding 135 paratroopers. Um, and, you know, when 9-11 happened, obviously the world flipped over and we being, uh, you know, one of the conventional ready forces for the United States Army. Um, you know, we were always, somebody on Fort Bragg, somebody in the 82nd was always on an 18-hour string to be called out to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, we weren't special operations, but we were, you know, the, the ready force for the, the conventional army. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, time progressed. Um, you know, the 101st and 10th Mountain and, and obviously a bunch of special operators, you know, went into Afghanistan starting in October of 2001. And it carried over, you know, into the next spring. Um, and then we got told in spring of 2002 that we were going that summer. Um, so my, you know, my mindset was everything that I've been doing for the last year plus as a company commander has been, you know, it's about to come to fruition. All mm-hmm. the training that we've done, all the physical readiness, all the physical training, all the marksmanship, the road marching, all that stuff is about to really um, become real life. And, and I just knew that we were on the right path and that I had to keep us focused on doing those things, mm-hmm. um, before we left. Now, 2002, keep in mind, Iraq didn't happen until 2003. So I actually went to Afghanistan, deployed to combat for six months and came home before Iraq even kicked off. Oh, okay. Um, and, and, and back then in Afghanistan, you know, there was only one brigade in the whole country. Um, and there were still, you know, most of the country hadn't even been touched by Americans. We often, in the six months I was there, would go to places that Americans had never been before. That wow. um, was, yeah, it was not uncommon. Um, in, in fact, you know, it was always one of my favorite things. My radio operator, uh, you know, from my company headquarters was African-American. Um, and, you know, the Afghan kids would come up and, and touch his skin. Wow. Um, because they had never seen, you know, a black man before. Um, so we knew that that was, um, you know, that we nobody had ever seen American. But we got to see some things, you know, like in a, a city called Coast. Um, you know, we actually watched. We were there for three months and, and watched the burkas come off. We, wow. we actually watched. Yeah, we watched the transition. Um, it was amazing to see the effect of the Taliban control leaving as early as it did, um, you know, as early as we were there. It was pretty impressive. Wow. When you first landed in Afghanistan um, and you stepped off the aircraft, what was your visual? So my visual, we flew into Kandahar um, and we flew a C-17 from Germany to Kandahar. We did an in-flight refuel over the Black Sea um, and then flew all the way in. And... um, we got off the plane and, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, it, it was first light. It was just dawn and, uh, the ramp opened and the ramp was, I remember was facing east. Um, so we got a nice good shot of Afghan sunrise right inside the ramp of the aircraft. And, um, one of the NCOs, one of the sergeants that was on the plane with me, um, had been a special operator and had already been to Afghanistan and back. And so we were walking off the ramp and he was like, Hey, sir, I know where I'm going. Um, just follow me, you know? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, uh, he had been there as crazy as it was. I mean, that was June, late June of 2002 and he had been there and back already. Um, but our advanced party was already on the ground and we had, a, we had some folks that, uh, that received this. But the thing that struck me was, is how open it was. Um, if you think of the Western United States, you know, the deserts in, in California, it's very similar to that. Yeah. Um, but, but in the first couple of hours, we figured out that, you know, 
that the air base Kandahar Airfield had been attacked by U.S. forces in the earliest days. Um, and a lot of the buildings were still shot up. They still had bullet holes in them. Um, there was one hangar there that still had a massive hole in the roof. Wow. Um, that it, you know, and, and, and being used, you know, repairing helicopters in that thing. Um, but it was still, there was still evidence of all of that there when we first got there. So for somebody who had never been to combat before, you know, it was an eye opener. Like this is, this is happening. This is real. There's evidence here that this is, it's not a, it's not a training exercise. Like this is, this is the real shit. Like this is no joking around. You know, that's, I have to be honest with you. That kind of stuff blows my mind because I think, you know, as, as, as a military spouse, I mean, as a civilian, you know, you, we'll never um, experience whatever emotion the service member goes through. And I've spoken to a lot of service members and I, and I ask them the same question. You step off the aircraft and, and nine times out of ten is their first time abroad. You step off the aircraft, you know, what do you see? And it just blows my mind because I think to myself, wow, you know, I've moved from one country to another. I've lived in three different countries. And I know when I've stepped off the aircraft, when I lived in the Middle East, the first thing that struck me was, oh, my God, it's fucking hot, right? Um, <laughs> but I've at least flew into some civilized place called Bahrain, you know. Been um, there? Very pretty. <laughs> yes. You know, I will always say this. I think for the time frame I was there, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then um, I think after I left, everybody just drank the Kool-Aid and went a little bit caca, you know, and I was like, OK, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of glad I'm glad I'm out of there. But at that time, I mean, it was there was a lot of U.S. military there. And I always say that it was like my very first experience with the military because I was there when they bombed um, the Cobar Towers. And oh, wow. yeah, and we felt the reverberation in Bahrain. Yeah. And um, the thing that always struck out to me was, um, you know, there have some guys doing their R&R &R and whatever. And um, I remember as flight attendants, trolley dollies, we were all like, shit, man, you know, and, and then the US military would were just like, we got it. We got it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. You know, for somebody that had never been around military before, it was surprised me how safe I actually felt considering, th you know, just over the causeway, they had bombed the Cobar Towers, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's a it's, it's a beautiful, crazy, ugly part of the world sometimes. Uh, you know, that's how I described it to somebody recently. Yeah. Um, about the places that I went to in the Middle East, you know. Um, so I can only imagine what it was like for you guys to see that the Taliban have gone and now there's some freedom and the women are taking their burqas off. I mean, that's... Yeah. That's... It was, it was, it was, it was, you couldn't miss it. I mean, we used to go through downtown coast, either on foot or in trucks, you know, a couple of times a week. So... You know, you could see the differences in just a few days here and there. Um, you know, we, you, obviously back then, not everything was armored. Um, you know, we didn't have armored cabs on the trucks. We, you know, we were riding around in open vehicles. Um, you know, there was no real IED threat back then. So um, we could see everything. Mm -hmm. So you drive through the streets and, you know, there's Afghans, you know, we're pulling security and stuff like normal, but. You know, there's Afghans walking through the streets and you're driving past the markets and all of a sudden you start seeing the faces of women um, here and there. And then there became more and more. And, you know, so you just you really couldn't miss it. It was uh, it was shocking in a good way. Let me ask you, before you guys left to go to go there, did you get any like cultural briefing as in don't look at the women or this is how you should act? You know, we got a very little bit um, and, and we it, it was the basics and a lot of us had read. You know, the, what is it, the bear goes over the mountain, you know, those books mm -hmm. that were written about the Soviet invasion. We, we tried to, you know, grab as much as we could and, you know, watching documentaries and, and gleaning as much as you could out of that. So we only had really the basics. Yeah. Um, and, and we tried as hard as we could to abide by them. And, I, and I'll tell you I, one quick story where we're kind of we had to change our tactics. Um, we went and cleared a market one day that was, you know, moving some we knew there was some arms trafficking going on and, and some other things. So my company got assigned to go uh, clear through this market and we were trying to be culturally sensitive. So we were, you know, kind of keeping women and children in one shop 
and then we would kind of, you know, turn our head and we would move them from one shop to another shop and then, you know, clear and so on and so forth. And, and as we were moving this group of women from one shop to another, um, thankfully the pin was still in it, but a grenade, a hand grenade fell out of a burka. Oh my God. And, yeah. And, uh, so of course, you know, we <laughs> like, we're like, we, you know, cause we weren't searching the women. We weren't touching them. Hell, we were barely looking at them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we came back from that operation and thankfully my boss, my battalion commander, who is a great guy. Um, we had some, um, some female MPs, military police, uh-huh. and then we had some female engineers on the base that we were building. And he pulled all the females together and said, listen, um, you know, we need you guys to start coming with us. Yeah. And, uh, every one of them, um, every one of them raised their hand and said, you know, Oh yeah, that's why we signed up. Let's go. And so we started taking them on operations with us and they would help us. You know, they would search the women. They would search the children. You know, we try to be culturally sensitive mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that really kind of kept us safer is the integration of them into our operations. But it was something, you know, I was in the infantry for the longest time. It was boys club. There was yeah. no women allowed in the infantry and we never took them on operations with us. They yeah. just weren't part of what we did. And then all of a sudden it became a necessity and, and an asset. So we were like, well, you know, <laughs> fuck that. Like we're not, you know, we, we need them. We yeah. need them to come with us, you know, and, and we started taking them with us and they were all for it. So it, it changed how we did business for the good. It was actually a really great add to what we were doing. You know, I'm just imagining because it's it's got to be hard. I mean, you know, I've been in situations over there, um, you know, where I've been with a couple of guys and, you know, obviously you're told you, you're not meant to stare at the women. But I can only imagine as they suddenly start appearing with no burqa, it's, it's hard but not to stare kind of, you know what I mean? It's hard not to look. You know, well, it, it is hard not to look. And then you've got the security aspect, too. Yeah. Right? So we had already been freaked out once by the grenade that fell out of the burka. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you still got to you still have to make sure that you are, you know, safe and secure. So while you're not supposed to look at them, you kind of have to look at them just to keep yourself from, you know, any obviously potential threats. Yeah. So it was a weird, weird balance. We were in a weird spot. And I think that the most of at least of where we were at in, in coast that most of the people understood that. And there wasn't a real big um, kind of splash back over over us, you know, kind of looking over crowds and things. Were the Afghanis, um, were they welcoming or could you tell that they didn't want you guys there? No, I, then I think because, again, it was very early. Um, I think they were they were welcoming. Truthfully, yeah. um, I, I you know spent a lot of time. Um, not as much as we were doing later, but in the early days, you know, I, I worked with, um, I, the best term for it is warlords. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the old, you know, pre pre Taliban post Soviet warlords who are now kind of coming back into power. Yeah. And, um, we spent a lot of time with them. They were obviously very welcoming because we got rid of the Taliban. Yeah. Um, I drank, I drank a lot of chai. <laughs> I, I, I ate a lot of bread, you know, I ate some, ate some roasted goat. Um, but we all understood that that was what you needed to do. And, uh, you know, we didn't shy away from it. Yeah. I, I recently spoke to um, a guy who was over in um, Afghanistan. He said to me that, you know, um, I remember that, um, one of the villagers had made a dinner, you know, I, I think it was yeah. a goat or lamb, whatever it was. Right. He said, and all I remember is um, it was covered in flies. You know, they've cooked it, yeah. whatever. It's covered in flies and um, you got to eat it because, you know, it's disrespectful if you don't. And he said, and all I could think of was, man, I don't know how many flies I've just crunched on right now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, well, obviously, you know, they don't do you any harm because you've lived to tell the tale. I can't imagine, again, this is where I am in awe of anybody that serves because I've had the luxury to, to go abroad many times. I worked as a flight attendant. I worked for His Royal Highness, so I went to nice places. Although I do remember being in um, Nairobi once and I think um, a bomb went off at the um, British Embassy 
um, and we were in the hotel like across the road. So there was two times I remember thinking, shit, this is it. But I was in no danger. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I wasn't in any danger. So again, it, it just blows my mind that you guys get on the aircraft, you get off the other end and the adrenaline has to be going. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is, especially that first time, just because, you know, you don't know. I've never been to combat before. Um, I didn't know what to expect. So, yeah, of course, you get off and, you're, and of course, you're, <laughs> you've been traveling ac- across the globe for a couple of days and your sleep cycle's all fucked up, so you don't even know what day or what time it is. <laughs> um, and, and, yeah, so the only thing you're relying on at that point is adrenaline. Yeah. Um, and so you, you're getting pumped up coming off the plane only to realize that, you know, you're going to walk through a, a personnel processing station. They're going to scan your ID card. They're going to, you know, move you off and get you into whatever tent you're sleeping in. And, uh, you know, and, and then you get yourself set in your living space. Now, um, you, you know, sorry, um, you did five tours. I did. Yeah. That's a lot. I did. Uh, Af- yeah, I did. Afghan- well, so I, I tell people I was kind of on the high end of, of average. Um, I, I spent 40, 40 total months, um, and and I would say that I was in the middle somewhere. Um, you know, not uncommon for somebody to do two 12-month tours um, and not uncommon for, you know, guys who spent a career to do, you know, it's truthfully six, seven, eight years, nine years over their total when you add it all up. Oh, so gosh. I was on I was on the high end of average, I think, at, at five tours in 40 months. I did after the first tour was Afghanistan in 02 um, and then came home, you know, and unfortunately I moved from the fighting force to the training force, you know, the training side of the uh-huh. army for a few years. Um, I went to Korea for a year um, unaccompanied. Um, so I went over there by myself and then I came home um, and, and literally between leaving Korea and landing in the United States, my um, really my directive changed. My assignment didn't change. I was going back to Fort Bragg. I was going back to the 82nd Airborne Division. and uh, But my unit that I was going to, I was going back to the unit I left, uh-huh. but they were already in Northern Iraq. Um, and they were, it was during the surge. So they had about three or four months left and I was just going to wait for them at Fort Bragg, you know, until they got back. Um, but <laughs> that was the last word I got before I left Korea. And then by the time I got back to the States, I got an email that said, Hey, we need you at Fort Bragg right now. Cause you got to go to Iraq. Wow. So I did 12 months in Korea. I got home, um, you know, picked up the family, moved them to, to Fort Bragg, shoved them in a house and less than 40 days later, I was on a plane uh, going to um, Iraq. Um, yeah. I got over there, and the, and the reason it changed was, um, you know, somebody got fired. I hate to say that, but it's true. Um, the guy that I was going to replace got fired in theater for some misconduct. I don't even know what it was. But he got fired, and they uh, decided they needed me over there. So I did 12 months in Korea, came home for about 40 days, moved, got back on a plane, went to Iraq. I was over there for the last three months of that deployment and then came home. I was home for 12, and at this point I'm a major, um, and I was doing staff work, which isn't a whole lot of fun. Um, And then I moved from there down to a battalion to be the operations officer, which as a major is one of the funnest jobs you can have. Um, And then I went back to Iraq. So I was in Iraq for three months, home for 12 months, training, back to Iraq for 12 months, uh, as a operations officer and then executive officer back in a, a battalion full of paratroopers um, in Baghdad, East Baghdad. Um, and our operating area was just south of Sadr City. Uh, so that was 2009, eight into nine. Um, I came home for seven months and then I got on a plane and went back to Kabul where I was the uh, aide-de-camp for, uh, at the time, Lieutenant General Dave Rodriguez, who was the commander of the ISAF Joint Command. Essentially, he was the ground commander for the war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. General Petraeus was the overall ISAF commander, and General Rodriguez was the uh, conventional force, fighting force commander um, on the ground. So I was his aide for 13 months. Um, which was the most one exhausting job, but probably the best job I had for personal and professional development in the entire time I was in the army. Wow. Um, 
Well, I mean, so I'm a major, and, you know, everywhere this this three-star goes, I go with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, myself, and there was, a, there was actually two of us, two aides, myself and a, and a Marine infantry officer um, who, you know, we got along great. But uh, one of us was always with them. Mm-hmm. Often both of us were with them. But uh, we planned to travel. We traveled with them. Uh, we moved him through Kabul. We moved all over Afghanistan. I got to see just about every corner of that country on that tour. Um, but we were working, you know, seven days a week, about, you know, 19, 20 hours a day. And, mm. um, and did that for 13 months and, uh, and then came home. That was the fourth tour. I came home, um, got back to the 82nd for another, uh, eight or nine months, moved again to Fort Bliss, Texas, Ooh. and then turned around and went back to Afghanistan for another what? six months as a security force advisor for an Afghan army brigade commander. That wow. was my last tour. Yeah, it was, it was, I had a 60 month span where I was gone for 40 months and then, and then did another six months after that, about, you know, 10 months later. That's crazy. I yeah. mean, yeah, that is crazy. Now, when you, so you, you do, you do, you do your last tour, you're going to retire. So let's talk about your transition into the civilian world. Was that hard for you? So it, 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 it was and it wasn't. Um, I, I think one of the reasons that I transitioned, one of the reasons I decided to retire was um, my, my body was starting to really kind of break down. Yeah. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I'm, I was an infantry guy, you know, my entire life. I spent 10 years as a paratrooper jumping out of planes, five combat tours. And, and oh, by the way, you know, I spent my youth as a full contact boy. I mean, I'm an athlete. I play sports. Um, I'm a, I'm a footballer, a, a, you know, a proper footballer. I, <laughs> I play soccer. I still play soccer to this day. Wow. Um, but you know, that it, all of that stuff was adding up. Yeah. Um, and, and so I've had a number of concussions in my life, um, you know, between normal personal life sports and stuff. And then through my military experience, um, I do have, uh, I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD. Uh, which is not necessarily the same. Not it, it's definitely different. Um, it is not the same as the as what people think of as PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is based on sustained high level stress over you know weeks and months and years, mm-hmm. as opposed to singular or rapidly repetitive traumatic events, which is most what most people associate with PTSD. Yeah. So I don't have I don't have a singular event that I have flash you know flashbacks associated with trauma or anything like that. But, you know, a lot of the other symptoms are the same. Uh, but all of that was kind of taken its toll. And yeah. uh, so there was that. And then, um, you know, as I approached transition, you know, I decided that I wanted to get away. I didn't want to do what a lot of a lot of folks do, especially a lot of officers, um, is they retire and they stay under the big Department of Defense umbrella. Yeah. They work as a contractor. They work as a GS civilian or a Department of the Army civilian, DOD civilian, or they work for a defense contractor or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I decided I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something else. So, um, you know, I decided I was going to transition into the business world. But before I did that, um, you know, I got a lot of mentoring from a lot of great bosses that I had over the years. And, uh, you know, they, they told me that, you know, physically, you know, you got to stay active, which I've done, mm-hmm. um, very easy to do in the military when they make you do it every day. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, when you don't have to do it every day, it sometimes it becomes a challenge, especially when your body's beat up like mine is. Yeah. Um, but, but I have remained active, but they also said that I had to keep mentally active. Yes. Um, and, and they both told me that, uh, or, you know, more than one told me that you, you know, you've got to look for something to keep your brain engaged. Um, and they used the word creative, both of them did, which I had never considered myself a creative person. Uh-huh. Um, like that's not a word I would have associated <laughs> with Colleen Novak before that. Um, so, so I did. Um, I found something creative to do and I started writing. Um, and that actually, you know, and I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but that actually helped with my transition because I, I kept myself physically active and I kept myself 
mentally active, which was, I think, is important. I think that is great advice that you were given. I speak to a lot of service members who say, yes, during, you know, my active years, like you spoke about the body, you know, um, we were active every day. Most guys like yourself played some element of sport before they joined the service. And then you compound that with, you know, skydiving and rock running and whatever other good shit that you guys do, you know, Uh, it obviously has got to take a toll on your body. And uh, some of them have said to me that now that we don't have to do it, we don't want to do it. Um, And some of them choose not to. But I do think it's smart that even if it's, I mean, I said to somebody the other day, I said, I know this sounds a little funky. I said, but dude, even if you do some yoga, and he's like, yoga? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> the yoga stigma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was like, ah, he said, I ain't do no damn yoga. I'm like, okay, but, yeah. but you know, I mean, you, you, there's got to be some element of movement. There's got to be some element of movement for all humans, I believe, you know. Um, and then you create those great endorphins that are, are just natural. And again, mentally, I know some service members that have unfortunately, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, they've, they've sat down and they just haven't got back up again, you know, and they're sitting in yeah. that same headspace. Now, I can't imagine that headspace, obviously, but it's, I can only imagine how difficult it is to get out of because these are strong individuals and they're finding it really difficult to mentally and physically be in a place that's is good for them, you know? Um, yeah, and I and I think, you know, the, the one thing that a lot of us, you know, are challenged by is that our, our lives, our career paths, our assignments, our jobs are laid out by our service. Mm-hmm. So while we do, a lot of us, you know, at some point in everybody's career, if you stay around long enough, you, you, you're looking for a specific job or a specific assignment or a specific duty station, or, and you're, you know, you're trying to fight for it. And sometimes you have to talk to your HR manager, or maybe some of your bosses, you talk to some of your old bosses, and they maybe give you a hand and, and, and arrange some things. But you know, it, it's, it's very rare. It does happen in the military, obviously, especially in the special operations community, where you have to kind of apply for the job, mm-hmm. um, and then be selected, obviously. Um, but for the majority of the service, that's not really a thing. Um, so when people get out and they transition, um, they, it's not uncommon. And I've talked to a lot of service members too, friends, um, acquaintances, people I've never met before, but you know, when they apply for jobs and they apply for jobs and they apply for jobs and, and it starts, you know, they, they don't get the first one and then the second one and then the third one and it starts to get discouraging. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Every service has got their own transition program of some sort, mm-hmm. um, which used to be terrible, and now have gotten better. They're not the best, but they've gotten better. Yeah. Uh, but but so many of us, if you don't, if you just leave the military and you just try and transition to the civilian world without any kind of support structure, um, it's very very challenging. Yeah. So, you know, I encourage everybody don't leave the military and then cut the military out of your life. Those same people that you knew in the military, they can still help you if nothing else, just to give you guidance and somebody to bounce ideas off of or to say, Hey, I, you know, is my resume fucked up? Like what is going, like, why am I not getting callbacks on these jobs? Yeah. Um, And, and there's still assets available to you as friends and as, you know, mentors and those, you know, my mentors helped me out, um, but too many people try and transition, and they try and leave the military, and they cut all ties. And I know men, and, and it's a stereotype, but men are horrible about that shit. I know we are. Um, you know, we, we we don't we don't ask for help, and we we don't keep in touch very well. No, um, I, I agree with so, you on both yeah. of those things. To be honest with you, yeah. you know, yeah. and and I actually spoke to a service member recently, and I said to him, "Listen, I don't know." what it feels like, you know, um, to transition out. But what I do know is this, and and this is crazy, but this is how I put it in my head. For all of the years I was on Navy bases with my coffee business, every day when I went on to, to the base to go to work, 
My ego cup was filled every day for 15, 16 years, you know, um, and it was great. I loved it. And then one day I closed my shit up and I was off base. And I remember waking up the next day thinking, what the fuck? What do I do now? You know, um, yeah, it's over and and, you know, and that's it. It's kind of ended. I said, and I, I felt blue. I mean, and, and, you know, it took me a long time to, to be able to admit, yeah, I, I think I'm a little depressed about it. I mean, I had a great run. I had the fucking best sure. customers in the world. Um, and now I'm not there anymore. And, and I kind of feel left out and I don't know what to do with myself. I said, so if I felt like that and all I fucking sold was coffee, you know, um, I can't imagine... I said to this guy, I said, I can't imagine how you must feel, you know. Um, it's got to be like 10 times what I feel, you know. And like I said, I was just the, the coffee lady, you know. Um, well, and I think the other the other piece that people forget about or they don't anticipate is that it's not just your job, right? Yeah. You're, you're changing your entire life. Like you're, you know, whether you're a soldier who lives in the barracks or you're, you know, an NCO or you're an officer, somebody, whether you live on base or off base, your life, your job is your life and yeah. your life is your job. Like your social circles are your job, you know, like all of the people you hang out with, the people you drink beer with, the people that you bullshit with or whatever, those are also the people that you work with. Yeah. And by the way, you're around them all the time. So when you're leaving the military, you're not just leaving your job, you're leaving a, a whole life. Um, you're leaving, and I don't think people ready themselves for that when they leave. No. And you know something? I, you know, I don't think I readied myself for when I was going to wrap up my last location, walk off that base and sure. never see those people again. You know, and to me, it was a great big family. And the other thing that I've realized, and it's, you know, because I'm going through the transition, I you know, and I, was, I gave a talk recently and I said, I don't think that there isn't a start or an end for the transition. I mean, my guy was in for 30 no. years, you know, there's there's a big element of conditioning there. And, you know, the transition is a real thing. Again, if it was hard for me, it's, it's got to be twice as hard for the service member. And now that I'm realizing that a lot of our friends have retired, the other thing that struck me, and it's hit me quite hard, is I took it for granted that those spouses, those friends that I made living in San Diego, they would always be in San Diego. But I forgot that they were here because they were stationed here. And yep. now they're going home and home could be the East Coast. It could be Texas, wherever home is. My friends yep. are not around the corner anymore. You know, they've gone. So it's like I feel I felt like my family had broken up because they were my family. They, they still are my family, obviously. But you'd, I'd never th realized that that was actually going to happen. And it, it sucks. <laughs> It, it does. And, and the other thing that I have really started to encourage more in the last year or so is the, you know, when, when folks get out, um, look for some of those organizations that give you that feeling and you don't have to live in them, you know, and I'm talking like the VFW or the American Legion, or yeah. if you've got a, you know, uh, an association from a unit that you were in before or something like that. Those types of environments are really good for you mentally, but they're good for your soul. Yes. I mean, I found these guys, I found these guys down in Florida. I told you I spent 10 years as a paratrooper mm -hmm. and I found this um, organization down in Florida. It's called the Phantom Airborne Brigade. And it's just a bunch of former paratroopers um, and they still jump round mm -hmm. canopy, static line. And, uh, and that's it. And that's what they do. So you get together, they do it once a month. I go down a couple of times a year, but you go down there and it's all former paratroopers. So the first time I went down there, I walked in and it was like being back on Fort Bragg. I didn't even know anybody, but it was just familiar. It was like being home, you know? Oh, do you know this guy? Oh no, I don't know that guy. Which unit were you in? Oh, oh yeah, I know that guy. And, and literally within 10 minutes, I had 20 new friends, you know? Yeah. Um, and I spent a weekend down there and I've gone back you know, two more times since. And I'm going down again in a couple of weeks to do it again. So, um, but it's that feeling of home that you stay connected. You know, you still get that that little bit of connection back to the military, and it's good for your soul. I think it's good for everybody 
you know, their, their uh, mental well-being. I couldn't agree with you more because I got to be honest with you, ever since I've been doing this podcast and I've been back on bases, I get an adrenaline rush when I am on base. And I sure. love just, I just love talking to to the service members, the guys, the gals. And I remember all those crazy jacked up conversations we used to have around the coffee cart. And I deeply, re- <laughs> <laughs> I regret not recording them from the get go. But um, yeah, when I'm on base, I feel like I'm, again, I'm part of this big family. And it, and it is, it is good for the soul. It makes you feel, makes you feel light. It makes you feel like I'm in the right place. Yeah. And this is where yeah. where I should be. Let's go. Let's talk about your book, because, you know, like you said, would you put creative with your name? You said no, but you've written this fantastic book. I want to talk about how it took you a couple of years to read to not read it, to write it. Keep moving. Keep shooting. This is your first book, correct? It is. Yeah, this is the first one. Now, it took you a couple so- of years to write. It did. So I, again, I, I started writing. I took the advice of, you know, those mentors that said, do something creative. I had a, an army friend of mine that said, Hey, you know, you were always a pretty good staff writer. You know, you wrote well, um, maybe you should, maybe you should write a book. And what he was thinking was, you know, do the nonfiction, you know, Clay's army war stories kind of a thing, which I had no interest in doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily my, my best friend in the world is a Hollywood writer. Ooh. Um, yeah, writer, uh, director, producer kind of guy. Um, and I was talking to him and he said, dude, do, do fiction because <laughs> you can write whatever you want. You know, you can it's space adventure, you can do history, you can do fantasy. You know, there's no fucking rules when you write fiction, write whatever you want. I sat down and I was just writing bits and pieces and I was doing it kind of catch as catch can, you know, 10 mm-hmm. minutes here. Uh, 50, you know, waiting for a, uh, a video meeting, waiting for uh, whatever, you know, yeah. I was just, I was bits and pieces and a, and a story started to form. And then I set it down for about six months. I just got busy yeah. and I set it down and I didn't touch it. And then, you know, I, I got an opportunity and I was like, ah, oh, you know, I'll, I'll pick this back up. So that was, it, it sat for probably six months ish, give or take a little bit. And, so I went back, I, re- I reread what I had written, and then I just kept writing. And I never had a plan. I never had a story arc. I never had an outline. I was just writing. And I, I got about two-thirds of the way done with it, and I said, let's just, let's just see if I can finish this. Yeah. Let's see if I can say I wrote a book, you know? <laughs> so I finished it, and I sent it to two people. I sent it to my buddy, the TV writer, um, and then I sent it to my dad and, um, you know, I tell the story about my dad, uh, and I don't even know if it bothers him or not. I don't think it does, <laughs> but I tell it, um, I, my dad eats books. He's, he reads more than any human being. I know, um, a voracious reader. He's the one who taught me to love books and to love reading. Um, and so I sent it to my dad because this, you know, it's a, it's an action fiction novel. Um, and it's kind of in his wheelhouse. So I sent it to him. And again, so blue collar, you know, guy from Chicago, he read it and he read it in a couple of days, um, very, very quickly. And he, he said, uh, that was a good book. Uh, don't quit your day job, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and you know, and he said it, you know, both lovingly and giving me a hard time. Yeah. Uh, but that's what he said. And then, you know, I gave it to my buddy, the TV writer and he read it. Um, and, you know, he told me the same thing. He said, hey, it was a really good book. And then it sat for a whole year. Um, I did nothing with it. I was content with myself that I had written a book. And, uh, and, and after a year, my best friend was like, hey, man, I, I've kept my mouth shut long enough. He goes, nobody writes a 300-page novel and lets it sit. You have to fucking do something with it. Yeah. Um, so I looked into self-publishing, which is a nightmare for me, I, I don't know about anybody else. A lot of people self-published, but for me, I looked at it and it, it had it had nightmare connotations to it that I did not want to get into. Um, so I, I, I abandoned and it was really about the, the logistics. It was really about the, you know, dev- designing the cover and then getting it to a print house and, and all of the logistics of it. Um, I really had not a lot of interest in. Yeah. Um, and then 
I looked at the potential for one of the big publishing houses, the New York, you know, publishing houses. Yeah. And truthfully, if you're, if you're an unknown writer, um, it, it's, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. So I found, uh, you know, they have this, the, the most common thing now is this hybrid publishing where you give it to a publisher. Um, they agree to publish it. They do all the hard work, all the legwork. Um, and you know, you do, you pay them some money and they do the editing and the cover design and get the ISBN numbers. And, um, you know, they, they get it printed and they get it into Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, and all that stuff. And that's what I decided to do. It's, um, it's doing really well on Amazon. I noticed. Um, it's so I've sold, you know, 600 plus copies in about seven months, which for a first novel that I'm doing all my own marketing and publicity for. Um, you know, that's my, my publishing company and that, and I knew this going in, you know, they're like, listen, this is your book. If you want it to sell, you got to do the work. Okay, yeah. fine. Um, so I do all the, all the marketing and all the publicity, but I sold about 600 copies. But if you do go on Amazon and you look at it, keep moving, keep shooting. Um, there's 74 reviews, uh, at latest count. Um, it's got a 4.9 rating. I think 70 of those reviews are five stars and yeah. the other four reviews are four stars. So people like it. It's, uh, I'm getting a lot of great feedback. Um, if you like, if people are wondering, you know, what the book is, it's, uh, if you like Jack Ryan, Jack Reacher, Jason Bourne type military fiction thriller, that's what this is. Um, and you know, the main character is a guy named Terry Davis and, uh, he's, uh, you know, Keep in mind the context when I wrote it. I was not intending to publish. I was just writing to write. So um, you write what you know. And he's a retired Army infantry officer. Uh, his background sounds a lot like mine. Ooh. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he, right, you write what you know. It's just easy that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you, are you Terry Davis? I would tell you that I am probably about... Uh, Terry Davis is probably about 80%. Okay. It's about 80%. There's, there are some differences, um, but, but the, the baseline of Terry Davis is, is Clay Novak, for sure. Now, I won't deny that. I mean, for people that don't know who Terry Davis is or what we're talking about, you've got to buy the book. And just giving you a heads up, he's a combat veteran, and the book is available on Amazon, IndieBound, and Barnes & Noble. Keep moving, keep shooting. And I love the cover. I mean, the cover is so appropriate. After you bought the book out, now you've sold 600 copies. This is your first book. Is there book yeah. two coming? Um, book two is written. Ooh. Book, three is, book three is also written. Check you out. Um, yeah. And, uh, so, and, and there's a portion of book four um, that truthfully has been pushed aside as I'm trying to, you know, do all this marketing and publicity. And, and now I'm, um, you know, I'm, selling merchandise associated with the book, anything to gain attention, managing social media, which is, you know, ultimately time consuming. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there are two more books for sure. But, uh, the key to that is, is selling enough copies of keep moving, keep shooting to make it worthwhile for a publisher to want to publish book two and book three. I love the merch. I have to say, I love, um, I was looking at the merch this morning and I love that flag shirt that you have. I love uh, that is the, that oh, is yeah. my favorite. Keep moving, keep shooting, Terry Davis. I love it. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know, it, and for those that haven't read the book um, or are interested in the book, you know, keep moving, keep shooting is something that the main character says to himself, you know, over and over again in in times of doubt, in times of stress. Um, it's a very simple. It's not just a tactic. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a really a life, it's a life mantra that uh, for Terry Davis, it, it helps him out when he, when he needs it most. Listen, I'm going to order the book. I was reading, uh, your, I was on your site today and just the blurb that you've put on your site, you know, makes you want to go buy the book. So I've ordered my copy off Amazon and everybody else needs to go and order theirs as well. So, and I want to ask you just briefly, before we wrap this up, there's a couple of things I, I, I need, I want you to give some advice here, right? Okay. I want, what is your advice today to any young guy or gal thinking of joining the military? What advice would you give them? 
Um, I would tell them to understand that they are no longer the most important thing in their own life. Um, you have to understand when you join the military that you are joining something larger than yourself. And the purpose of your service is not to serve yourself. It's to serve those around you and it's to serve your nation. So you have to understand that before you sign on the dotted line, because if you think you're going into the military solely for your own benefit, now don't get me wrong. You will, anybody who serves is going to get benefit out of it. You're going to get training. You're going to get education. You're going to get life experience. You're going to get a lot of, you're going to make some great friends. All of those things are going to happen. But the purpose of your service is not the number one priority is not you. It's everybody around you. And you have to be able and willing to do that before you sign on the dotted line. I think that is some really good, sound advice, uh, you know, um, for somebody joining. I think, And I think it's, I've never heard it really being put that way either, that it's not just about you, you know, but it's so true. It isn't just about that one individual. It's about every it's about being a team. That's right. Yeah. And being a good team member. Yeah. 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 Now you're, you know, you're, you've grown up uh, hunting and guns have been a big part of your life. So if somebody was to come to you today and say, hey, listen, never shot a gun, never even held a gun. Um, but, I, you know, I want to buy a weapon. I want to, you know, uh, for self-defense purposes. What's your advice to them? Number one thing is to get training. Um, you, 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 before you purchase a weapon, before you put one in your home, um, and before you, you know, you, you carry one, especially before you carry one on your person, you need training. I, I was truthfully, I, like you said, I grew up in a house. I grew up shooting, uh, clay targets growing up. I grew up hunting. Uh, and then obviously I spent a career, you know, carrying a gun for a living. Mm -hmm. Uh, I training with firearms has been integrated into my life since the time that I was, you know, you know, prepubescent really. Yeah. Um, and so if you're not that person, if you've never shot a gun before, you've never held a gun before, you don't know anything about guns, um, go sign up for a class. Uh, there are tons of them out there. There are great trainers out there, but go get trained, get training before you buy, uh, for sure. Uh, because it, if you are, if you own a gun, you have a gun in your house, and for whatever reason you feel the need to, to use that gun, to point it at another human being to protect yourself, if you don't know how to use it, you are as big of a danger to yourself as you are to anybody else around you. Oh, um, yeah. So training, 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 and more training. And don't buy until you feel comfortable that you can successfully and, and you know easily operate that weapon. Now, tell me... In your opinion, what is what is the mark of a good trainer for when you're buying a weapon? What should that person, what qual should they have or what experience should they have? Um, I would tell you that just because someone was in the military doesn't mean that they're qualified to be a trainer. Mm -hmm. So by by just having, you know, well, you know, former soldier, former Marine, former whatever, mm -hmm. that, that in and of itself is not a qualifier. Does mm -hmm. it help? Yeah, maybe. But that, that's not a mark of just being a, a qualified trainer. Um, I would look at truthfully the amount of training that they do. Mm -hmm. Um, if they have multiple classes, if they, if they travel for training, um, and then truthfully, it's almost like any other service. Do your research. Mm -hmm. um, see what see what their reviews are. Everybody's got an online past in history. Check them out online. See what people are saying about them. Um, and and then you know you've got to make an, an informed, educated decision based on what you're reading. But uh, you know don't be swayed by the you know former this, former that kind of thing. I also wouldn't be swayed necessarily by anybody that. Uh, solely set what you know hasn't been an instructor for very long um, you probably need a couple of years of experience for that you know that that word former i think that tends to get a lot of people because they do assume that you know he's, he's sure. former i don't know he, he could have been you know in the military what four years in a day or maybe didn't even make it four years but they're former military so just that statement in itself i think sometimes people think oh wow he's former military so he's got to know 
you know? Yeah, not, absolutely not true. <laughs> that is a- absolutely not true. Yeah, and, and I've seen people, you know, honestly, um, I've seen people who are, you know, in the professions of arms, combat arms guys, infantry folks like me or, or whatever, um, that are still not, I, I wouldn't trust to train, you know, friends of mine or, you know, but wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't trust them to train, train people that I know, um, just because they were in the military doesn't, doesn't mean shit. It's gotta be more than that. Listen, I got a couple of quick questions for you here. Okay. What okay. favorite band? Led Zeppelin, without question, hands down. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you'll see it's, uh, a, you know, it's in, they make a, a little bit, a couple of appearances in, in Keep Moving, Keep Shooting, um, and truthfully, a little peek into the following books, they make a couple of musical appearances in those as well. Favorite cuss word? Um, the catch-all, obviously, is, you know, in the military, it's fuck, fuck is conversational. It's a noun, it's a verb, it's an adverb, it's an adjective. But my my favorite one, um, and it's something that I use uh, to describe specific people, is shitbag. <laughs> if you're a shitbag, uh, that speaks volume. Yeah. If I call somebody a shitbag, that, that really means something. So, I, you know, fuck, it, fuck is the easy answer, but I'll go with shitbag. You know something, it's it's funny because when I moved here, I mean, back home, I'd call plenty of people shitbags. It had um, a different connotation back home. You weren't, it wasn't as um, hard or as demeaning, I guess, as the word is used, I guess, with, with a lot of my military friends. I remember somebody saying, yeah. once, you know, dude, he's a fucking shitbag. And I thought... And I didn't think much of it. And then I realized that, okay, he, shitbag, to call somebody shitbag is not a good thing at all. No. Yeah. No, shitbag and douchebag. That was the other word that, yeah. 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 Um, favorite war movie? Oh, that one's tough. Um, I would tell you my current favorite that I've watched probably really in the last five years, I've probably watched a hundred times is 13 hours. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I love it because it is, um, it's, uh, I think the interaction between the six, you know, operators, the GRS guys, the back and forth, the fucking with each other, but at the same time relying on each other and the dependency upon each other and the friendships, I think is a great microcosm for how good units are in the military. And it gives me a very, like, it's a very familiar feeling listening to those guys. <laughs> and just as they talk, it's great. I love it. What's your favorite drink? Well, so I, I, am, I am not a drinker anymore, and that's mostly because of the, the TBIs and the, and the PTSD. So I, I don't, but when I was, I, I will, I'll coin flip it because it was a tie. I was a huge uh, fan of Guinness. Love, love. Well, being a partially Irish Catholic kid from Chicago, it kind of came with the territory. Um, But definitely a Guinness drinker. And then uh, Rye on the Rocks is my other favorite one. Oh, wow. Now, Guinness, I mean, that surprised me. I've got to be honest with you. Um, But the last time I drank Guinness was 19 years ago. And, And I only remember that because I was pregnant with my first and um, my sister, who's a midwife, said to me, hey, listen, you know, the, you know, for, you know, your blood, whatever. She said, have a have a Guinness. You can have a Guinness. And then she called me back almost immediately. And she said to me, one, just one Guinness. <laughs> yeah. Very rarely is it just one Guinness. I was for like, those that like it, if you like the taste of it, very rarely is it one. Well, I got to be honest with you. I'm not a Guinness drinker. And I was just like, man, I got to. It was the first time I think I ever thought, wow, this is a, a beer type drink that I've had that I've had back home um, that I just can't stand anymore. But yeah, she was like, make sure it's just one. I'm like, oh, yes, I know. I'm just going to have the one. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to leave? What words of advice have you got for our listeners out there? Um, don't uh, don't let the internet rule your life. Nice. You know, yeah. Social social media is social media, and and as somebody who's on it every single day, 
um, to, you know, as I manage the publicity and marketing for this book, and I'm on as many platforms as, as I can successfully manage myself, um, it is very easy to get wrapped up in the internet arguments. And I would advise people to stay away from that shit. Yeah. It, it causes just so much angst and stress and crap in your life. It's just not worth it. You know, and the amount of people that argue on a daily basis about whether Michael Jordan or LeBron James is the goat. Um, that's a, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, it is. the Auburn, Alabama football thing is already starting to, you know, it's been spiking up again because college football season. Yeah. But, and people just who don't know each other get into active arguments over, you know, the simplest shit. And it just gets ridiculous. So don't, don't let the internet rule your life. It's a bad practice. Well, you know, I love what Mike Tyson said, you know, everybody's, you know, everybody becomes a keyboard warrior and everybody's brave on a keyboard. Yeah. But nobody would say that yeah. shit to my face. He said, because I'd punch That's him. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Everybody's gotten way too comfortable with, uh, you know, running their mouth on the Internet without any repercussion. This is true. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And that's that was Mike's point. I, I you know, and he's 100 percent right. You the shit that people say on the Internet, you would not say to people's face. No, um, it's it's ridiculous. And they're they're keyboard brave. So, yeah, I don't want that shit get to you. Now, before we before we part ways here, I want you to tell everybody your website, where they can buy your book, your Instagram handle, all your social media shit that we at this age kind of hate having to do, but do. Okay, so Facebook, Facebook is pretty easy. It's Clay Novak. Um, there's not a lot of us out there, uh, and you can find it. It's, it's my uh, author site. Uh, I don't have a personal Facebook, although you know a lot of my Facebook connections are friends and family, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, I am on Twitter at C Novak Author. Uh, I am on Instagram at C Novak Author. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, which is where obviously you and I linked up, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know more of the professional site. Uh, again, you can you can search me on there. Pretty easy to find. Uh, but my website is claynovac-author.com, um, and you can actually buy signed autographed copies of Keep Moving, Keep Shooting on my website. Um, those orders come straight to me. You order it. I sign it, um, and I ship it to you personally. Uh, there's also other merchandise on there. We're selling some, some great coffee. I got some T-shirts and some baseball hats and some other things. Uh, but uh, the book is available, as you said before, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, and then Amazon, obviously, Hardcover, softcover, and Kindle or ebook version. It's also available on Apple Books. Uh, I think that's what it's called, Apple Books, uh, in the you know in the Kindle or the e- ebook version. Yeah. So you can get it in a number of places, uh, but uh, Amazon for most people is you know consuming and taking over the world. It's the easiest place to find it. Yeah. Um, but uh, but any of those places, IndieBound, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, and then obviously Apple Books for the the uh, electronic version. Clay, it has been great talking with you. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for being on today. And thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. You're you're a blast. I think this is the second time you and I have talked, <laughs> and uh, I, I've I've enjoyed every every minute of it. You are a, a personality and a great great person to host the podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And we will talk again soon. So I want to say goodbye and thank you for listening to The Good Show. This was Clay Novak, Dash Author. Go to the website, go to IG, go to Amazon, buy the book. Keep moving, keep shooting. Clay, we will talk again soon and join me in two weeks for my next episode on The Good Show.